Okay, well, good afternoon everyone. Let's, uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we bring before you all our prayer requests, but especially our desire for you, and our desire for you to work in our lives and for you to come powerfully into our lives. Through your Holy Spirit, through your Son. And we pray that you'll bless our reflections on you today, and that you will bring us to eternity, and that you'll strengthen us in the path. So please go with us, Father, and bless us all in our various things. And that you will just help all of us to take one day at a time with you and to grow spiritually and to really get the fire of love for you, to know your love and to ask your love into our lives and to reflect that to others. Be with those Christians who were recently baptised to go on their body through torture and we pray that you strengthen them with all the psychological suffering that goes with having been tortured and electrocuted and things like that. And we do pray for Jesus to return to the earth very soon to end all this stuff and to establish your kingdom. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Right. Okay, so, I'm going to talk about Israel in the wilderness and how, what things happened um, as they approached the promised land. So, there's a book in the Bible called Deuteronomy, which is the speech that Moses gave, it seems, on pretty much the last day of his life as they came to enter the promised land. Now, Moses had sinned. Because he was told by God, speak to the rock and water will come out of it. But he gets his rod and he hits the rock. And he says, must I bring water out of this rock for your rebels? And God says, because of that, Moses, you're not going to enter the land. He's going to be saved, but he couldn't go into the promised land. Well, when you look at Moses' life, he died at 120. And we're told that his natural uh, faculties, like his sight and his hearing, didn't fail So he had 120 years of great life. The first 40 years he was growing up as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, with wealth and everything. Then he had a runaway. Next 40 years he spent as a shepherd, looking after his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. And the final 40 years he spent leading Israel through that same wilderness. So his life worked out pretty clearly. But as he was living through it, I guess he didn't see it like that. Just like... When we are in God's kingdom, we shall look back and we'll see, oh yeah, my life was just really organized like this, like that, like that. Oh yeah, I get it. But as you're living through it, you don't see that higher hand that's guiding it. It all seems random. There's no random. There's no random in your life. No random at all. No chance. It's all in God's hands. So, these are the words which Moses spoke at the end. Right, so he's, this is a man in his spiritual maturity, and he's, as it were, worth listening to, because he very often says in Deuteronomy, this day, I plead with you this day, today, as if this is maybe the last day of his life. So it's a 120-year-old man, he's got very close to God, and now he's in his spiritual maturity, and he is about to die, and this is his final kind of swan song. Right, verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And in the 40th year, in the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel. So, you can walk from Mount Sinai, from, let's say, the, uh, the uh, border with Egypt. You can walk from Egypt 
to the border of Israel, the promised land, in 11 days. But it took them 40 years. All this is part of a big parable. Paul says that we are baptised into Jesus in the same way as Israel were baptised in the cloud and in the sea. You remember the story of the Red Sea? They've been in Egypt as slaves. They wanted out because who wants to be in slavery? They were brought out to the Red Sea. The Red Sea opened. There was water both sides of them and a cloud on the top of them. Now a cloud is just water. Right? And so Moses says they were baptised because they had water both sides of them, water on top of them. And it's what is called a type, a type of baptism. So, there we were in Egypt, in slavery. We wanted out, so we got to be baptised. But when they came out the other side of the Red Sea, they weren't in Canaan, they weren't in the Promised Land. They were in the wilderness. And that's the same with us. You get baptised and you're not, well, suddenly in God's kingdom. You've got to walk through the desert. And that's this life. But we're told that it only actually should have taken them 11 days. But it took them 40 years. They were just wandering round and round in circles chasing their tails. And that is how it can be in our lives. That people waste their lives. Oh, I've got this passion about this. Oh, this hobby I'm getting into. Oh, now I've got this career. Oh, now I've got this, um, whatever it might be, this new interest in my life. Oh, this relationship. Oh, this is going to be it. Oh, no, it won't work out. Oh, now this one. Oh, it won't work out. Um, I, I want this car. I want this house, this flat. I want this whatever. And people are like a, a cat chasing its own tail. Mounted round. Whereas once you get it, that the one thing I am interested in is salvation and walking with God, you've got a direct path. That's what I put my heart to, that's what I'm going, and life enough a lot easier. It was a long day's journey, but it took them 40 years. So, when they came the first time, they came out of Egypt, they came to the border of the Promised Land. And God says to them, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and to their seed after them. The lowland, the south, the seashore, the land of the Canaanites, as far as the great river Euphrates. So, God had promised Abraham that he and his seed would inherit this huge area from the Mediterranean right up to the Euphrates, which is in Iraq. Go in and possess it. It's yours. It's like, here's the kingdom of God in front of you. They never went anywhere near the river Euphrates. All they did was to grab the bit of land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. That's a, a fraction, about 10% of the land that was promised. In other words, they only took a very small uh, per, of the percentage of the potential, let's say, that God had given them. That doesn't mean people aren't saved, but it's so frustrating from God's side that there's so much potential lined up for us that people don't want. Anyway, don't forget this is most of the end of his life. So it's kind of like his autobiography. And he says, I spoke to you at that time saying, I'm not able to bear or carry myself alone. How can I myself alone carry your encumbrance, your burden, your strife? I can't carry you. You're too much for me. 
Now, later on, he's going to say, You have seen how Yahweh your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went. So it was God who was carrying them on their journey through the wilderness. But Moses complains that, how can I carry you myself? So I think this is an admission of weakness on his part. He's at the end of his life, he's looking back, and he thinks, yeah, I remember that time, and I said to God, I can't carry them anymore. You have to carry them, Moses, because he now says, yeah, Yahweh, your God, your God carried you as a man carries his son through the wilderness. But he says, yeah, there was a time when I said, I can't carry them. So you see, that is an admission of weakness on his side. So, one, I think, factor in spiritual maturity is that you come to recognize your sin far more. Look at Paul, if you look at his letters arranged chronologically, in the English Bible, they're just arranged fairly randomly, or according to their length, as I said. But if you read them chronologically, he starts off to the Corinthians saying, I am the least of the, of the apostles. I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. Then he's writing to the Ephesians a bit later, and he says, I am the least of all the believers, of all the saints. I'm less than the least of all the saints. A terrible man. I'm the worst Christian there's ever been. But when he's about to die, and he writes to Timothy, through Timothy 4, he says, I am chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner on the planet. And yet, also, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, I know for sure that there is a crown laid up. I have no doubt I'm going to be saved. So on one hand, he gets more and more confident that he's going to be saved, and yet he also is more and more aware of his sinfulness. Now, that's the, that's the way to grow. That, that is spiritual maturity. That... You know, the world is sick and tired of people, you know, who give this awesome image, you know, I am awesome. You know, the, the beautifully dressed priest or pastor, you know, I am awesome, I don't sin. You know, you know. No, no. It's not attractive to ordinary people like you and me. And people also don't like people who are, well, I'm not impressed, but let's put it that way, by people who say, well, I don't know if I'm going to be saved or not, I've got no idea. Well, where's the gospel, the good news? The good news is that God loves you and you will be saved. So, well, I am definitely going to be saved. But I'm chief of sinners, by the way. Shouldn't be, but I will be. Now, you've got that humility and yet that confidence fused together within your character, your personality. Yeah, this is what helps us to be the light of the world. So, good for Moses that at the end of his life he's remembering his weaknesses pretty well maybe on the last day or certainly the last month of his life but I, yeah, there was a time when I said, how can I carry you alone? and he said but <laughs> your God carries you as a father carries his baby child through the wilderness so I was wrong on that and he says, well we travelled from Lord Abbot Sinai I went through all that great and terrible wilderness and we came to Kadesh Barnea so he's saying that, yeah, the wilderness was awful. Later on in Deuteronomy, he says it was full of, of snakes and scorpions. And you see in the parable, you come out of Egypt, you, you want out of this world, you get baptized about crossing the Red Sea, 
And you're in the wilderness. That's where we are. We're still walking towards Canaan, towards the promised land. And the wilderness is terrible. He says this. It's huge and terrible. It's got snakes and scorpions in it. So the Christian life, the walk to God's kingdom, is not easy. Snakes and scorpions out there, as you know. Temptation, nastiness, all the rest of it. And God recognises that, as I know. All that great and terrible wilderness. So he says, we came to the border, Kadesh Barnea. Your God has set the land before you. Don't delay, nor be afraid. Just go in there, just get it. But they did delay. They said, let us send men before us that they may search the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up. The cities to which we should come, the thing pleased me well. And I took twelve men of them, one man for every tribe. So they get to the border. God says, go in there, don't delay. It's all yours. And they say, God, not so, not so quick. We want to send 12 spies. They send these 12 spies. As the story goes on, 10 of them come back and say, yeah, it's quite a nice place, but we can't possibly inherit it. It's filled with really powerful people and we are nothing. We can't take it. Let's go home. Let's, let's go back to Egypt. And so they didn't go in there. That generation didn't enter. But that's why he says there, don't delay. And I think we've all had that. You get that desire to do good, but you think, well, I shall do that tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I want to start losing weight. Well, I shall start a diet tomorrow. Or next week. Or whatever it might be. I, I should help that old lady. And I will do that. Um, tonight? No, not tonight. Um, tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. And, you know, this is a, it's very human. You know, the Bible is right spot on in its psychology. Don't delay. Go in and take it straight away. Wait a minute. I'm just going to send some spies. In other words, yeah. And in numbers, you see, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are a bit like the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But um, it's sort of parallel accounts of the same, the same thing. You know, put them all together to get a picture. In, in numbers, they say, yeah, we want to see whether it's a good land. God had said, it is a good land. And he's also said, and I will go before you. You see, while they went through the wilderness, they were led by an angel. That was in a pillar of fire by night. Kept warm in the desert, it's cold in the desert at night. And the angel was in a pillar of cloud in the daytime to keep the sun off. Don't tell me God doesn't care for his people. He definitely does. So, when they were travelling, the angel in the pillar of fire or cloud, we're told, went three days' journey in front of them to show them the way they should go. But they say, yeah, yeah, we want our men to go before us so that they can find out the way by which we should go. You've got an angel in a pillar of fire and cloud going three days in front of you. What does that mean? Three days. How long was Jesus dead in the grave? Three days. Three nights. Then he resurrected. 
So I think that all represented Jesus. He has gone ahead of us. He's risen from the dead. The path to salvation of the kingdom of God is absolutely clear and has been worked out. But, ah, now I, I want some human evidence. The same with them. How do we know this is a good land? God told you it's a good land. How, how do we know? How are we going to go? What's the route? What's the itinerary? How are we going to go? Look, there's an angel in a pillar of fire and cloud that's got three days in front of you to, uh, to, to find them, to show you the way. Oh no, we want our guys to find a way. It's very, very human. And it's the simple case of taking God at his word, really. He's a good God. And he has set us up to live forever. He's not a psycho. He's not set us up for evil. Set us up for good. And Moses says, and this thing pleased me well. I agree. That's an admission of failure. Because I think, as the story goes on, I mean, if only they hadn't bothered sending spies and just gone and done what God said, well, they wouldn't have had this rejection, oh, yeah, we're not going to go, we don't want to go there, we want to go back to Egypt. So, again, it's a man at the end of his life saying, yeah, that was a mistake sending those 12 spies out, and I agreed it, and I actually thought it was a good idea, how wrong I was. Yeah? This is humility. So, the spies come back, they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us and said, it is a good land, which Yahweh our God gives to us. But you wouldn't go up, but rebelled against the commandment of Yahweh your God and you murmured in your tents and said, because Yahweh hated us, he has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Our brothers made our heart melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we, the cities are great and fortified up to the sky. So, they murmured in their tents. God listens to what you mutter under your breath. God heard what they were murmuring in their tents. They were living in tents, right? Travelling around. And there they were, well, Moses isn't here. And they're saying, God hates us. And God heard what two blokes were talking about in their tent, or a mother to a daughter-in-law, in a tent, thousands of years ago, and it's written here. God sees and knows all things. He knows what you think in your heart, he knows what you mutter under your breath, what you say, as it were, in your tent. And they said, it's because God hates us that he's brought us out of the land of Egypt. God hates us? When you look at the other accounts of the uh, yeah, what happened, God says, like we looked at Hosea, for example, he says, I brought you out of Egypt, and I brought you to Sinai, and I fell in love with you. Oh, I thought you were beautiful. I loved you. And I would have done anything for you. And as he's going to go on to say, God carried you. As a father carries his baby child through the wilderness. So, on one hand, you've got this massive, colossal, indescribable love of God for his people. I love you, I love you. And they say, he hates us. He hates me. How tragic. Absolutely tragic. And that's the same today. The, the evidence of the love of God is all around us. You look at creation. Open your eyes. Look at it. Is this a, an evil God who made all that? No. 
And I think at least God looks at us, we who are definitely not perfect, we who are sinners and all the rest of it, but we see his love and we want it. Yes, I get it. I love you. Thank you, God. You're a good God. You love me. Thank you. And there's all these other people out there saying, oh, what's God doing? He's allowing all this suffering. He's this, he's that. Oh, God's a psycho. What's that psycho? Actually, you've got a choice. God's either a good God, and he loves you, or he's a really bad guy who hates you. There's no middle way. God is good. And you come back to the most simple core of the Gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So we're here to take the, the bread and the juice in memory of Jesus to remind us of God's love. That he loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us. And all through Deuteronomy, Moses keeps talking about the love of God. And he says many times, <laughs> because your God loved you, he brought you out of Egypt. He's answering this silly idea that God, God hates me. Oh, you meet some people in life today, oh, God hates me. Everyone hates me. Not everyone hates you. No. Oh, I, I, I was in the shop and this woman was rude to me. Everyone hates me. You know, it's a sort of negative psychology, isn't it? Everyone's against me. Life's negative. Everyone's bad. Everyone hates me. People say, oh, I went to school. When I was a kid at school, a guy told me the other day, every one of my teachers really hated me. I was a school teacher. I, I, teachers didn't hate me. That's what you think. And so it's a case of opening your eyes and looking at the love of God. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So, they say, our brothers made our heart melt. That's the ten spies who came back and said, the people are greater than taller than we are, and they live in cities that are fortified up to the sky. Big walls. They said, oh, our hearts melted. We looked a few weeks ago at Rahab, who was a prostitute in Canaan, who lived inside the walled city of Jericho. What did she say? She said to the spies, well, not these spies, but it was 40 years later, um, she said, when we heard what God did for you guys, Israel, at the Red Sea, our hearts melted. Our hearts melted. So there, there these people, let's say, in Jericho were, in this big walled city, with hearts melting for fear because of Israel. And the Israelites come up to them and, and their hearts melt for fear. Both sides with hearts melting for fear of each other. So, what are these big walled cities? What do they represent in our journey to God's kingdom? Well, I think they represent the barriers between us and salvation that we might think are huge, and I can't get over them. For example, we might think that I'm so addicted to this or that. I can't see another way, this Big barrier. I can't forgive them. I can't forgive her. I just can't. It's too big. I can't stop this. I can't be like that. All these apparently great big walled cities, these apparent barriers between little me and eternity are not as big as they seem. They are not as big as they seem. Now, they say, right, the ten spies say, 
uh, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, hey guys, you can do it. Wonderful, go ahead. But the ten spies said, no, you can't do it. We can't do it. Okay, so they said, right, fair enough, let's go back to Egypt. When you put the record with numbers together, the book of Numbers, God says to Moses, okay, I'll destroy the Lord. I will destroy all the Israelites and I will destroy them immediately. So upset. And Moses goes into God and begs with God, please don't destroy them. And God says to him, I have pardoned according to your word. So, here's God saying, I'm going to condemn and destroy the whole of Israel. Moses prays and God says, okay, I forgive you, pardoned according to your word. And Moses is a man. How much more effective do you think is the prayer of Jesus Christ for you and me? The Son of God is interceding for you and me. And you know, Moses says, uh, sorry, God says, I've forgiven them according to your word, Moses. How much more will God forgive us because of the intercession of Jesus? Because <coughs> I don't think that Jesus is up in heaven sort of doing nothing. You know, watching the clouds go by. He's very busy. With us not, he'd be very busy indeed. <laughs> um, praying for us on his own agenda. It's not simply that, oh, you decide to pray. Oh, Jesus says, oh, Duncan's asking for a um, blessing on his son Daniel, um, who is in hospital or whatever. Oh, God, by the way, Duncan's asking for a blessing on his son Daniel. Please help him. He's interceding on his own agenda. It's like Jesus says to Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not, because I see a big test coming up for you. So Jesus is that busy for all of us, talking to God on his own agenda for you and me. So what Moses achieved was incredible. God said, I'm going to do, I condemn them. They are all going to die. Oh, don't do that. Now, that's what you read in Numbers. Here in Deuteronomy, which is Moses' sort of autobiography, in telling his own story, he doesn't mention that. He doesn't say that to Israel. I would have thought that was one of the greatest things that Moses did in his life was to get salvation for a nation of condemned people. But he doesn't tell them that. And that makes sense, because if you're in a real intimate relationship with somebody, so with God, well, you don't share every bit of that with other people, by its nature. So, you've got a partner, right? You're in that relationship, and you, you may have very intimate moments, very close moments. So between Cindy and I. But I don't stand here and tell you what you lot all about it. It's not your business. By its nature, you don't go and tell other people about your intimate moments in your relationship with another person. Don't do that. And so, in this real relationship that Moses had with God, where God had told Moses, I'm going to destroy them all. And Moses begs him, don't, please forgive them. And God says, okay Moses, I've forgiven them because of you. He doesn't tell Israel that. Even in his autobiography, at the end of his life, he doesn't tell them. That's what I call relationship. <clears throat> I keep talking about personal relationship with God, and that's what it looks like. That you have very close moments with him and with Jesus, that are so close... You don't stand up in church and talk about it. You don't talk to someone else about it. And I love that. I think it's beautiful. 
Anyway, I said to you, don't dread, neither be afraid of them. So, God's forgiven them. They've been condemned. But God's forgiven them because of Moses. <clears throat> and then Moses gives them another chance. He says, okay, come on guys, go in. Don't be afraid, don't dread. Jesus quotes that about us when he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe in me. So, <clears throat> this applies to us. So what do they do? They sinned, they said, oh no, we can't inherit the kingdom. Salvation is too hard for us. God says, right, okay, that's it. You don't want it, you won't have it. You're going to die. Oh, Moses, God, please forgive them. Okay. So he comes to them and says, now, come on, you know, go into the kingdom, you've got another chance. And they still don't want to do it. You know, it's like coming to the day of judgment. <clears throat> there you are before God on the day of judgment. You condemned, Duncan. You didn't make it. And Jesus said, oh God, you know, I let him, let him in. Okay, Duncan, you can go in. I'm like, I don't want to go in. <laughs> and this is how it was. Absolutely. <clears throat> so he says, You've seen how your God carried you as a man, carries his son in all the way you went. But you didn't believe Yahweh your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in in fire by night, to show you by what way you should go in the cloud by day. Yahweh heard the voice of your words and was angry. So they said, oh, we don't want it. After they've been condemned and forgiven, let off, go on, go into the kingdom. No, we don't want it. And God says, right. <clears throat> You won't. Not one of those men of this evil generation will see that good land, which I promised to give you, your fathers, except Caleb, because he wholly, wholly followed Yahweh and Joshua. These were the two spies who came back out of the twelve of them and said, yes, yes, it's a good land, we can do it. Caleb, you read in Numbers, it says he was a Kenizzite. Now, they, he wasn't a Hebrew, he was a Gentile. And his name means, and it's in modern Hebrew to this day, Chalev, means a dog. <coughs> dog. That's what his name means. He says, Caleb will enter because he has completely followed me. Like a dog follows his master. There's this guy who was a total outsider, who was the Gentile, but he faithfully followed Yahweh. You see, the angel had gone ahead, got on the land, it was all good, and he perceived that. As Paul says, walk in step with the Spirit. That's what Caleb did, so he's going to go in and Joshua. And the next bit. But Yahweh was angry with me for your sake, saying, you also shall not go in there. About four times in his final speech in Deuteronomy, <clears throat> at the end of his life, Moses says this. God was angry with me because of you, Israel. That's why I can't go into the land. No, Moses. What happened was, God told you and Aaron to speak to the rock and water would come out of it, but you didn't. You picked up your rod, you hit the rock, and you said, must I get you lot water out of this rock? And God was very angry and said to him, because of that, you can't enter the land. But in the narrative of Moses, he says, no, 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 he wasn't, I was a good guy. It was for you lot, you lot. Because of you, I'm not allowed to go into the land. And he's bitter about that. He says it four times. And he also admits in chapter 3, 
that he asked God many times if God would change his mind about that. And God says to him, talk to me no more of this matter. Well, I said that as you grow spiritually, you come to a point where you confess your sins more. But it is also true that you do not come to your grave place perfect. You come to your grave place imperfect. You're not going to get perfect at the end of this life. When you, you cough and act your way through to 80, 90 years old or 100 years old if you're that unlucky. I mean, you, you're still not going to be perfect, are you? You're going to die with your sins and your weaknesses. And all these righteous men of God, we're told in Hebrews 11, Moses will be saved. He'll be in the kingdom of God. At the end of their lives, they're all still imperfect. He was imperfect at this point because he was still blaming them. He was bitter that I'm not allowed to go into the land. But you think, Moses, you lived 120 years with, with your faculties and your natural strength perfect. Your vision was good, your hearing was good, your health was great, right up to 120 years old. Come on, mate, you haven't... Get it, you had a pretty good innings, and you did a lot with your life, and you're going to inherit the land forever anyway. Come on. Plus, if he saw this thing about the three groups of 40, that the first 40 years of his life, growing up as a kid in a pampered life in Egypt, next 40 years leading sheep in the wilderness, Next 40 years leading Israel in the wilderness, you know, you would have thought he would have seen, yeah, God's hand is in my life. And I'm going to live forever. I've had a good innings, um, 20 years. You would have thought he'd have got that and been appreciative. But he wasn't. I want to just have the kudos, the kudos of leading my people into the land of Israel. No, you're not going to have that, Moses. Now, he's got this victim mentality. It's not fair. Not fair. It's you lot that are to blame. You, you caused this. No, no. It's your fault, Moses. You didn't obey God. And you got angry with you. That was your punishment. Just accept it. Just accept your sin. And, you know, look at the glass half full, mate. You had over 20 good years. You lived a great life. This is not to say Moses will not be saved. And the fact that he says this... Oh, quite a few times in Deuteronomy, in his last speech, last maybe day or month of his life. So, what do we take from that? We're going to die imperfect. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, it doesn't matter. I can carry on living my sinful life where we're all going to die imperfect. No. But it is comfort when you look at your life and you think, well, I am, I'm not perfect. And I can't seem to get on top of this and I can't seem to get on top of that. So, will I be saved? Yes, we will be. Because you're not going to be perfect. And it helps you in relating to other people. You've got some people you think, well, you reckon you're a Christian. But you don't get it over this point, or that point, or that point. Yeah, correct, they don't get it. This doesn't necessarily mean they won't be saved. Because they're going to die imperfect. Just as you will. So it's sort of a comfort, but also a challenge. So God says to them, no, that's it. You know, I've condemned you, but then at the last minute, sort of in your day of judgment, I forgave you because of Moses. You still didn't want to go in. You still didn't want the kingdom of God. You still didn't want salvation. Okay, well, that's it. Go back into the wilderness to the Red Sea. So their punishment 
Although they didn't go right back to Egypt, they were sent back to the Red Sea. It's like the whole journey was reversed. Paul says that we should examine ourselves lest we be condemned with the world. And I understand what he means by that is when Jesus comes and there is judgment, the world is also going to be judged. There'll be, you know, I don't know, pillars of fire and whatever coming down, judging people and things. And Jesus will simply say to those of his people who are unworthy, go back into the world. You love the world? You don't want to go my way? You want to be down a pub getting stoned every night instead of coming to a Bible study? You love that world? That was your way? Go back to it. Simple as that. In other words, we make the answer now. It's not so much that he condemns men, but that man condemns himself. But then they say, oh, no, no, we have sinned. Verse 41. Verse 45, you repented and wept. But Yahweh didn't listen to you once. Now, repent, what does it mean? It means to think again. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He says there is godly repentance. And there is the regret of the world. You can regret, oh, oh dear, I've got to suffer because I, I don't know, got drunk and smashed that bloke's car or smashed his head or something. Oh, whoops, I, I repent. What, what do you mean is I regret it happened? Oh, dear me, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. And the same with them here. We've sinned. Well, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said that. I have sinned. I repent. Well, he didn't really. He just wanted to get out of the consequence of some of the plagues. King Saul of Israel, who was condemned, said that. Oh, I've sinned. So, repentance has got to be from the heart. It's got to be genuine, and it involves confession of sin to God, not not to man. And they didn't have that. It was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, no, no, I do want salvation. No, 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 it's too late. There will come a time when it is too late. That's for sure. Now, these people, Israel, say, Anna, we want to go into the land. And so they say, verse 41, we will go up and fight. We'll fight our way into Canaan. God says to them, don't go up nor fight. I'm not with you. You'll be struck down before your enemies. So I spoke to you, Moses says, and you didn't listen. You rebelled against the commandment of Yahweh and were presumptuous and went up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you dead. So all too late, they say, we want to be in the kingdom of God. Remember the story of the wise and foolish virgins? That the foolish girls, when the Lord comes, uh, oh no, I, I'm not going to come straight away. I need to go and buy some oil for my lamp. The lamps have gone out. They come to the door and they knock and they say, Lord, open to us. And he won't open. He says, Who are you? I don't know. Nothing bad. My point is that those rejected at the day of judgment will desperately want to be saved. The foolish girls knock on the door, oh please let me in, that's too late. Same with Israel here in the wilderness. Okay, you're not going to go into the land. First of all they're like, oh yeah, so what? I oh, we desperately want to go in there. Too late. I'll give you another example with Cain, who killed Abel. God rejected him. 
And what was his punishment? He wandered, like they wandered, but he lived on the east of the Garden of Eden. Why did he live on the east of Eden? Why did it say he lived on the east of Eden? Because the entrance to the Garden of Eden, Genesis says, was on the east side of Eden, and the cherubim guarded the way to the Tree of Life so that nobody could get to it. It's like he, he lives near the entrance to the, to the Garden of Eden. I want to get in there. No. He lived eastward in Eden. He wanted to be near the entrance. Maybe I can get in. So, now, you talk to people about the Day of Judgment. You talk to people about God. And they're like, Adam. You say, you know, it's going to come a Day of Judgment. Yeah, I don't care. Look, nobody's going to stand there on the Day of Judgment and say to God, the Lord Jesus, uh, I don't care. Oh, I'm not going to be in your eternal kingdom. Yeah, yeah that's fine, mate. Yeah. No. We will stand there and every fibre of our being will be, I want to be there. I desperately want to be there. I want nothing else. I only want that. There's no good with all the bravado and all that that people show now. That one's... Spiller and, and myself are down there, Carol down there by the venue giving, giving out tracts. People put on this, you know, bravado. Oh, all that God stuff. No, 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 I'm not all that God stuff, mate. You do that now, but in that day, in that day, there will only be one dominant passion of our life. I, I want to be there. And it will be too late for these people. So, point is, in this life, now we make the answer now. In essence, we stand at judgment day now. And it's only the outcome of the judgment is a reflection of our choices, more than God. <coughs> now it should be that we feel, yeah, I, with every fiber of my being, with every atom in my body, want to be there. I want to be there. And that's how it is. You will be. Unless say, oh yeah, but I'm weak. Yeah, that's fine. You're weak, sure. But with every fibre of your being, that's what you want. It's yours. Absolutely. And it's ours because of the work of the Lord Jesus. So, let's, um, let's give thanks for the bread that's a symbol of the body of Jesus. Um, Spiros, can you give thanks for the bread? Father, we give you thanks. One thing we can be sure of, that you love us. That measure. But as we come to take the bread and the blood of Christ, Father, if any of us have anything against a brother, we need to examine ourselves, Father. And if we're unforgiving towards anyone, we pray by the power of the Spirit, Lord, that we can forgive. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Right, so the bread is a symbol of the body of Jesus. Right, so this then is the symbol of the blood of the Lord Jesus. So, Kevin, could you give thanks for the uh, cup? Father, we thank you for this cup that we're about to participate. 
pray you bless us and set up the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes. Bless and touch each and every one of us and you can bless us and see and heal us. For we know the shed of blood is for the remission of our sins and also by your stripes. We were healed. Bless this man and we want to pray. Bless each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well, we do believe by faith that, um, that our food's going to come down the table soon. And I uh, wonder, Sean, would you like to give thanks for the food? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food that is before us today. We give thanks and grace to you, Lord, as we go forth this week ahead. Prayer blessing on all of us in your holy house today, Lord, and throughout the week coming. Lord, all good people in this house say Amen. 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 Amen.